my name is Dan Jacobson. I'm the campus pastor here, and I just got to let you know, I'm, it's just a privilege for me to be a pastor of this congregation. I am just so blessed. My wife and I, we just need you to know, we just feel so loved here in this place, and we want you to know that we sense the Spirit working in this church, in this congregation, in these neighborhoods, and I just want you to know from my heart to yours, just thank you for having us be here and for allowing us to be used by God in this way, and we're just excited to see what God's been doing. Are you glad to be here as well? Amen. Take your Bibles. That's what we're here for right now is to open up God's Word and have Him speak to us. God, your Word's not mine. Titus, chapter 2. If you flipped open to 1 Peter, just go back a couple books of the Bible just a little bit. I've, I've got a passage today, Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. And if you're brand new to Bethel or you don't have a Bible but you have a phone, if you go to Google and you type in Titus, T-I-T-U-S, 2, number 2, and then a colon, that thing, and then 11. It'll come up magically. It's the one, most wonderful thing Google has ever done. And uh, while you guys are flipping to Titus chapter 2, just finding your way open to where we'll be uh, today, I, I, I was thinking about life as a parent. And uh, all, a lot of us in this room are parents. Can I just see a raise, you know, show of hand? Who's a parent here Yes, there's so many parents. And uh, so to become a parent, and by the way, we need to be praying for uh, the Wasco family who's in labor now, which is awesome. Yeah, and uh, like the grandparents are here. I don't know what they're doing here, but they're here and, of course, still serving, probably making sure the place doesn't burn down. So thank you, guys. But uh, you remember that day, that first day when your first child was born? If you're a parent, you, if you're not a parent, you can just imagine war. It's like, it's just total chaos and war, and there's blood flying everywhere, and sometimes the saws come out, and there's sounds of like a mechanic shop, and you're like, what, this is not how I'm supposed to enter the world. As a parent, I remember watching my daughter be born into this world, and I was so blessed. My daughter, Elin Joy, she's two years old now, but she was born in June, and four days after she was born, I had my first Father's Day. It was like one of the most special occasions, and um, I took a picture of Elin when she was four days old, kind of just being held in my arms on this Father's Day. This is her. This is one of the most precious pictures I have of her. Uh, we were just sitting at home. I think that was a Sunday afternoon, and she was just lounging in Daddy's arms. And it was a weird moment for me because I, I had nine months building up to the fact that you're going to have a kid. That's God's blessing upon parents, right? you got nine months to prepare. But at the same time, I was... It, I had no concept of what it would be like to be a parent. What was it going to be like to have another, another human in our house? What was it going to be like to have this little crying, needy thing? And, and, and I remember the thoughts going through my mind at this moment on this Father's Day, at this time that this picture was clicked. I remember thinking about how much hope there is in the arms of your daddy and how much hope I have for my child as she is in my arms. How much hope holding her in my arms I had just welling up for her future and for the type of person she was going to be. Because I, I was thinking, you know, she costs a lot of time and attention and money now. But one day she's going to grow up and she's going to be a field goal kicker for the Chicago Bears. Yes, because field goal kicker, I'm her dad, I want to protect her, she shouldn't get hit, there's rules in place, but I also want her to make game-winning field goals and make us a lot of money to pay back what we're about to pay for her, right? 
Now, I have ambitions and hopes for my daughter that she would be uh, gleaning from my musical acumen. Actually, let's hope that it skips back a, a, a generation from her grandparents' generation, some musical ability. She'll write songs that even like Taylor Swift thinks are cool. Like, I hope that that happens for her. I'm her daddy. I want the world for her. I remember thinking in this moment, the hope that I have for my daughter is that she would grow up to be loving, that she would grow up to know Jesus, that she would grow up to be a caring type of person, that she grew up to have her mom's sense of humor and not mine, that she would grow up to be wise beyond her years, that she would uh, have adventurous, uh, fun personality, that she would um, be diligent and hardworking, she'd be caring and compassionate. These are all the things that I remember holding my daughter in my arms and thinking, this is what I want for you, this is the hope that I have for you. And it took me actually holding her in my arms to realize that there is this hope. It took me experiencing that moment to recognize the hope that I had for her future. You see, we seldom hope for what we don't know could be. We seldom hope in the dreams that we don't have. And I want us today to look at Titus chapter 2 to help us realize, maybe you've never realized that the Christian life, there is hope for us and for our future. And today in Titus chapter 2, Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus, he it writes out for us the hope that we have for us. You see, where, where wishful thinking fails, hope has the ability to rewire the mind, to reprogram the heart, to reorient the soul, to help us stay the course when times are tough, to help us believe in the things that are unseen and to take us where we never thought we could go. You see, all of us have hope in or for something. At a wedding, the bride and the groom hope that the other keeps their vows. Right? At a funeral, we hope that one day the loved one that we've lost will be seen again. At birthday parties, we hope for another year of progress and growth. And for some of us at Christmas time, we just hope for gift receipts. But all of us have hope. We hope in this deep, confident expectation, a grounding so to speak, in our hope that actually propels us forward. See, hope, it moves us. It moves me to act in ways that I never thought I could and to do things that I never thought were possible. It moves me, it moves you, it moves us as a community. In Titus chapter 2, we see how Paul explains how this hope that we have grounds us in our community. Are you in Titus 2? You have it in front of you? Great, let's read together. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. I just want to stop right there. I want to unpack a little bit of what Paul is describing here to Titus. He starts by explaining that, that hope is grounded in the appearing of God's, what does it say? It's right in the text, God's grace. The grace of God has appeared, which brings salvation for all people. The, the meaning here, which is deep and beautiful for us, this first hope that I want to bring to your attention that, that Paul is highlighting for us is that there is a hope that we have for righteousness. The hope that we have is our hope for righteousness. Could you just say that with me? The hope we have is for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, I don't know if you've 
never, not grown up in church, or maybe today is your first day in the church building, you're like, I don't know what righteousness is, Dan, that's a weird word. Well, you may have a sense of unrighteousness. To be righteous means to have a right standing in a relationship. And when we use it in church, it means that we have a right standing before us and God. But unrighteousness is when there's a fracture or tension in a relationship or something is wrong. Maybe you've been in your family at a Christmas party or an awkward Thanksgiving party where there's unrighteousness between an aunt and an uncle or cousins or something and you could feel the tension in the room. That's a picture of unrighteousness. And the truth that Paul is pressing in on us here goes all the way back to the beginning. It's this, that all of us at the beginning of our lives, we are between us and our relationship with God, we are all, technically, the theological term is jacked up. We are messed up. We are in a state of unrighteousness with God. You see, the truth about man and human history is that we are broken, we're selfish, we're hurting in our frustration. We don't even get past the second page of the Bible before we display our wickedness and our sinfulness. You see, the story, yes, the story of God and creation is that God creates the world in Genesis 1, right? And he breathes into existence and he speaks the words and the earth is formed and it's perfect and it's beautiful. And God creates man and he breathes his breath into his lungs. You see, in, in, in Eden, God gave his breath to us. And he tailor-made for Adam a a wife made from his ribs. It's an amazing, talk about a soul mate right there. Adam and Eve walk in the cool of the day and God is with them. The most amazing scenes in all the Bible happen in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where God is a present in his creation, where God has a perfect relationship with his people, where God is so intimately involved in their lives that he walks along the cool of the day. It's as if Adam and Eve are at God's tropical resort sipping kitty cocktails and lounging by the lazy river. This is the good life. But it doesn't take long for us to see that our sinful ways rear their, their ugly head. Because the good life in the Garden of Eden only lasts 28 verses. The whole entirety of the good life that we had was 28 verses long. Because we all know that Satan came and deceived and we were tricked. And out of our sinful desires of our heart, we ate, and sin enters the world. You see, the reality of our past is that we, like Adam and Eve, we constantly choose to disobey and distrust God and his word, and it wrecks us, and it separates us from God. And the penalty for their sin was removal from the garden, and death enters the world. And so now we're all born into this world, not only selfish, but with a complete propensity to ignore the visible workings of God in our life. We are born as aliens, as enemies, as the songs that we sang today so clearly stated, I once was your enemy, but now, right, I, I was born, we all are born into that state where we're in unrighteousness with God. We see this here today. I mean, my daughter, you saw her up there. She's really cute and everything. But she came out, and we have proof that she is selfish. She's a wicked little sinner at heart. And that's how it goes. And sin has entered the world, and brother fights with brother. And on page 3 of the Bible, brother kills brother. And this carries on today, right? 
I mean, the marketplace, it's shaped by corporate greed. Economies are in turmoil because of manipulation. Entertainment is host to a slew of perversions. Uh, Families are wrought with relational conflict and insecurities. Uh, We lock everything up because we don't trust anybody. We put locks on our doors. We put money in banks. We even put passwords on our phones, which is ridiculous to me. But we put passwords on our phones because sin dissolves trust. Uh, One of the largest issues in our society today in, in education that teachers deal with is plagiarism and cheating. We as a society, tend to buck against submitting to the power that's centralized in the hands of a few because of the vast amount of abuse that has become of that. Do I need to keep going with a problem that we have because of sin? No? You guys are like, we feel it, Dan. Move on. Because this is us. We're enslaved to our addictions. We're hungry for power. We're insecure in our abilities. Some of us have been victimized by the actions and the sins of others. And some of us, if we could be completely honest today, and I could sit across a table from you with a cup of coffee and we could just share our life stories, you would say to me, Dan, I want to believe that there's hope for the future. I want to believe that there's hope for this life, but I just feel like I don't have hope. And it was into this world, this post-Eden world, that God interjected himself into our story through the person of Jesus Christ. Where God had looked upon our estate and he saw us and he said, I will send my grace and your hope to the world. This is what Paul says in Titus chapter 2 verse 11, for the grace of God, look at it, for the grace of God has appeared. It's past tense. It's, It's already been shown. He's already come. It's here. And he's brought salvation to all people. You might know this already. Grace is undeserved kindness. It's something that you don't deserve. It's a a gift to you that you didn't work anything for. And the universal undeserved kindness that God has bestowed upon all of us is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? You see, deserved kindness would have been that while you were a sinner... You read some self-help books, read The Secret, figured out how to get yourself clean, and then once you were worthy of dying for, then Jesus would die for you. But we have a promise in Romans 5.8 that while we were still sinners, while we still were enemies of God, while we still were against him, Christ died for us. You see, we deserve to be locked out of Eden. We deserve the punishment, which Romans 3.23 says is death. But this is how amazing and how powerful and how absolutely excellent our God is. That in his grace, he gives me what I don't deserve, which is life. The grace of God which brings salvation to everyone is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and to break the power of death in our lives. And to set right what was fractured in the garden. This is the hope that we have for righteousness. This is the hope that we have in our future is that God is working to restore our lives and to restore this world and to redeem and to reconcile to himself all things. You see, in Eden, God gave us his breath, but on Calvary, God gave us his blood. And through his blood, we have grace 
which brings salvation for all people. Uh, I can't say it any better than what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the, what's that word? The righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. That's the hope that Paul shares with Titus, is that we have hope for righteousness because God has appeared and brought grace to us. That somehow when Jesus died, I gave him my death and he gave me his life. I transferred up to him my sin and he gave me freedom. I gave him my bondage and he said, you must be free because of my sacrifice for you. He satisfied my penalty. He gives me a reward. And so we're no longer hopeless, friend, but we have hope. Because the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation to us through Jesus, and we can be new people in God. Amen? That's the confidence that we have when we place our trust in Christ, that he will conform me to a new character, the character of God. And he does that. Look at how he does that here in Titus chapter 2, verse 12. It's through training. Look with me. Verse 12, it says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So pay attention here. Hope carries with it future expectations that are based upon past events, but hope is always lived out in this present age. We have hope from God here. This righteousness from God is what allows us to renounce ungodliness today and the worldly passions today and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives today. Each day. And the marks of righteousness are a life that says no to sin. And as far as it concerns me, I act with self-control. As far as it concerns the way I interact with others, this is what Paul says. He says that you might act with self-control, but the way you act with others, you might be upright. And the way that you relate to the Lord, you might be godly. You might be godly. And all of this takes training. Let me just put some cards on the table for you about myself. When it comes to training, there is nothing in the world I would rather avoid more than training. I was never one for, um, <clears throat> obviously, physical training. Um, uh, musical training, forget it. Uh, even pastoral training. I was, I'm kind of the guy that's like, I just want to jump in, two feet, get things moving. Anybody else like me, you're kind of just like, I'd rather just do the job. I kind of figured out as we're going. We'll build the plane in the air. It'll be great. And so I, I, um, I was a 16-year-old kid who walked into driver's ed kind of confident that I knew what I was doing behind the wheel of a car because I had driven go-karts. My dad owns a car shop. For years, I helped him out. I started when I was four. It was not child labor. It was okay. And um, I would help him. I was around cars all the time. I walked into my driver's ed class thinking my self-made driving skills, pulling cars in and out of my dad's shop when I was 14. Like, I got this, dude. I don't know what you're going to show me from Oprah that's going to scare me, but, like, I can drive. And um, I was a good driver, to be fair. I never had any issues, but I was not a trained driver. And I found out that there's a difference. Because one day as a high school student, I was driving home uh, from school in my sweet ride. It was a 1990 Toyota Corolla SR5 stick shift black. It had those headlights that, you remember these cars? It had the headlights when like you hit the thing, they like go, Zhoop. you know what I mean? This is back in the day, almost DeLorean style. 
And um, if you did it really fast, you'd, like, you'd be like, and it looked like the car was blinking at you. It was the coolest thing in the world. I paid 500 bucks for this car. I love this car. And one day I was, uh, had a new CD. This is, yeah, I know, I'm old. Er. And uh, you remember the CD wrappings? You had to like, use your hands and your teeth to like, rip those things open. I'm opening up the CD to listen to this thing, and I'm driving my stick shift, got too much going on. And all of a sudden, the car in front of me gets cut off by another car. And I see these two red brake lights and the shiny Lexus symbol looking back at me. And I jam on the brakes, and it was kind of wet outside, and I skid, and all of a sudden, kabam, right? And my, my uh, radiator is bursting, and there's steam coming out, and the hood crumples back from the car, and the headlights go flying everywhere. And all I see is this Lexus symbol right in front of me thinking, oh, I had hit a $65,000 Lexus. She was not very happy. I um, called a tow truck because my car was totaled. I called my parents. I did not call the police, but they came, and they gave me a ticket, which I totally deserved. You see, I wasn't a trained driver, because had I been a trained driver, I would have known that on a 1990 Toyota Corolla SR5 5-speed black with headlights that do this, you have disc brakes. Disc brakes are not analog brakes. Disc, disc brakes are the brakes that freeze up when you jam on the brakes. To stop quickly, you gotta, you gotta pump them. And then I would have learned that in driver's ed. They told me, I'm sure, but I wasn't paying attention. And so often, how do we in our lives with Jesus, so just like that, think that we got this thing covered? Think that I know Jesus, I gotta know Jesus. My dad was a deacon, my dad was a pastor. This person, I, I've been in the church ever since I was a fetus. I know what grace looks like, and we haven't yet allowed, listen, 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 we haven't allowed the grace of God to train us into the righteousness of God. How often we go through our lives understanding that God is a forgiving God, that God is a loving God, that God is a gracious God. And so we use that as a license to sin our way through life, to say, no, 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 it's not a big deal if I live with a little bit of sin. Jesus is definitely going to cover that. And so we grow tolerant to the little, slight mistakes, and we don't realize that what we're doing is ignoring the visible workings of God in our life, and we're heading towards an accident. Some of us, I'm afraid, we abuse the grace of God in our lives, and we don't, we don't lay claim of this hope that we have for righteousness, because we ourselves are already self-righteous. We don't need anybody to tell us anything. We don't want our wife's input. We don't want our husband's input. We don't need that guide on the road to tell me what to do. I don't ever want to listen in a small group. I've always got the answers. Who are you to tell me, man? Has it ever occurred to us that the biggest need in the heart of a Pharisee, these are the religious leaders who crucified Jesus, the biggest need that they had in their heart was the need for grace. And the biggest character defect in the heart of a Pharisee is that we don't realize our need for grace. And our hope for righteousness, that Jesus Christ has come and given us grace, it changes our hearts and it gives us hope and it shapes us and trains us and forms us into the image of Christ. This is the hope that we have for righteousness, to acknowledge that at the center of everything is Jesus, not me. And when I recognize that I was an enemy without him, and that I'm going to be an enemy without him. Hope moves me to say no 
to sin and to accept by faith Jesus in my life. But friends, you may be here today and feel like there's no way you could ever have righteousness. There's just too many things that you've done in your life. I've had people tell me, Dan, I don't want to tell you what I've done because you're a pastor. It would, it would scare you. As if to say it would scare God. And we know that we have hope for righteousness, all of us, because our God is able to take care of our sin. And so through the grace of God which has appeared, we have salvation, which is available to all people. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness. But there's another hope that we have here in verse uh, 13. Are you still with me in verse 13? Let's look at verse 13 together. There's a hope that we have for Christ's return. Second hope that we see is that we hope in the fact that Christ is coming again. Look at, look at verse 13 with me. It says that we're to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age today, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, we have the grace of God which has appeared in the past. And in verse 13, we have the grace of God which will appear in the future. This is the hope that we have for the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that one day, whatever we think is going to happen will happen. And Paul doesn't tell us a lot about the return of Christ, but that's okay because we got this thing figured out anyway. I've met Christians who uh, have calendars and calculators and they have like figured out the exact time and day that Jesus is going to come back. Do you know this? There are people out there who will tell you. Do you remember Harold Camping two years ago? 2013. This guy put up billboards all over, the, all over the nation. I met a guy in a Walmart parking lot who had sold his home, who had gone all in, just sat out in the parking lot and waited for Jesus to come back because somebody had said, it's going to be October 13th, 2013. I don't know how crazy people like this put this, the name of Jesus on stake in the media, but somehow people buy into this idea that even though the Bible says nobody knows the hour or the day, not even the Son of Man who is Jesus himself, we think, oh, yeah, yeah well, I know when Jesus come back. Or we also know those, uh, through the majesty of those Left Behind books. You read those books? Come on, you read those books. Those books were runaway bestsellers. Everybody read those books. Those books are awesome because they taught me two things. It taught me, number one, if I ever have a son, don't name him Nikolai Carpathia because then he'd be the Antichrist. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> and uh, the second thing they taught me is that when Jesus comes down from heaven upon high to rapture and redeem all those who are his, he's going to stop and take time to fold our clothes. Did anybody else like, watch the movie and be like, why are the clothes all folded? As if to say God's a God of order or something? I don't... I don't know. But let me be completely transparent with you because I'm poking fun at some of our society and what we do. But can I be honest with you guys? Every time I hear cultural anticipation or cultural thoughts about the return of Christ, every failed prediction, every crazy idea about Jesus coming back, every time we as people get it wrong, it serves to kill my hope. It serves in some small way to diminish my hope that I have that Jesus is actually coming back. And for the next just two or three minutes, I'd love just to remind us that this is a mega theme in all of the New Testament. That Jesus Christ said he will return. He will come back. Jesus said 
in Matthew 24 that he set it up to his disciples, right? He said in Matthew 24, verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven with power and great glory. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In this passage, Jesus is talking to his four disciples that he trusted most in sort of like this backroom meeting to encourage them. You see, the return of Christ is never something that should cause us fear. It's something that should encourage the believer to hope for the return of Christ. If Jesus wanted to scare people, he would have said this in Matthew 5 when he spoke his Sermon on the Mount. But he's encouraging those who walk with him to say, listen, listen, some things are going to happen and I want you to be ready for them. And, And this is one of them. I will be coming again. John, at the end of his gospel, has this strange interaction with John and, James, or John and Peter and Jesus. And John was the disciple that Jesus loved the most. And so as John and Peter are walking along with Jesus, Peter, there's this rivalry going on. He looks at Jesus and he says, uh, well, Jesus, what about this man, John? What's going to happen to him when you go? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? but you follow me. And in all of this, John has like this sort of like position in this environment to say, Jesus just totally backed me up. That's awesome. But he doesn't focus on what Jesus says about himself. He says, look, Jesus will come again. Jesus just said, if he remains until I come again. Jesus clearly teaches this. Paul takes this idea and he reminds the church of it in almost every single one of his letters. Uh, Of the 13 letters that Paul wrote that comprised the New Testament, 11 of them contain references to the coming of Christ again. And just as an example, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, at the end of every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians, he references the return of Christ. And I've kind of just listed them out for you here. And this is what we as Christians are to be doing as we hope for the return of Christ, is that we are to wait for him. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We're to hope for him. We're supposed to be blameless for him, to be encouraged by his coming, and to be ready for him. And he ends his letter to the Thessalonian church saying that the God who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. And he will come again because he says he will. You see, Jesus teaches it. Paul teaches it. John records in Revelation the picture of what life will look like the end of times, and the second to last verse in the entire Bible is the words of Jesus, and he says this. He says, surely I am coming soon. You can bank on it. You should hope for it. You should anticipate the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to this world for you, and he will come because he said it. Have you ever noticed our God has a way of accomplishing that which he puts his mind to? This is our hope, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think the commands of Jesus are so simple, we sometimes find them to be hard. We are to watch for him and be ready. We are to wait for him and be expectant. We are to work for him and be productive. As we hope for the return of Christ, we are to be Watching and waiting and working. Watching and waiting and working. Watching and waiting and working. Um, The three cannot be segmented from each other. Hope in the return of Christ means that we do not just wait and watch. Go out in your backyard after today's over, grab an Arnold Palmer and look up at the sky and say, I'm ready, Lord. 
but we also must be working. You can't just work and wait and not look. How many of us do that, where we go through our days and we know we're waiting for Jesus to come back, but we're never consciously saying, God, would you come back today? Jesus always gives pictures of people who are at work. Matthew 24, he says that the day when I come back, that it's going to be like two women who are out in a field working or two men who are out in a field or two women who are grinding grain in a mill or a servant who is doing the work of his master. I think about it this way. When I was younger, uh, my parents would leave for the night when I'd be like eight or nine years old and um, they would leave me and my two older sisters in the house to do our homework and do, do, do some chores. You ever give your kids chores to do? Say, I'll be back around nine. Make sure the dishes are put away, the laundry's done, and your bed is, is, is ready. Right? You got that thing made. And so my parents would leave, and I would go uh, immediately to the freezer and grab a big bowl of ice cream. And I'd go to the TV, and I'd flip on a Bulls game, and I would sit there until 8.57, and sometimes my mom was so gracious, and this is back before there were cell phones, she would actually call from wherever they were, and she'd say, hey, we're on our way back, are you guys okay? And I know it was just my mom saying, if you haven't already done what I asked you to do, you better get busy. But some days she wouldn't call. And all of a sudden we'd be sitting there in our living room watching the Bulls game, and we'd hear that little hum of the garage door going up. And me and my sisters would spring into action, throwing pillows back on things, running and dumping all of the ice cream into the dishwasher, just trying to act as if we were busy and working the whole entire time, and, and, and they never, it never worked. And how similar is that to us as we think about the return of Christ? Hoping in Christ's return causes us to get busy on his behalf. Causes us not to procrastinate in our laziness. Causes us not to miss the opportunities to advance his kingdom that he's called us to. Hoping in Christ's return is what has caused us to start this campus. To reach out to the Hobart and Portage communities because we believe the time is getting near. The time is getting short. That we may not have all the time we believe we have. And we want to be faithful and diligent to proclaiming the good news that God is amazing. God is love. That Jesus saves as much as we can. And so I wonder about you, what opportunities have you let go? How have you forsaken your obligation to work for Christ as you wait and watch for Christ? May we be hoping in the return. And so Paul shows us that we have a hope for righteousness through Jesus. We have hope for the return of Jesus. And he finishes this section. One more lesson. You have time for one more lesson? One more lesson. It's the hope that we have for relationship with God. Look at verse 14 with me. This is the last verse that we'll read. Verse 14 says this, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. At the end of our days, our hope is the same as our existence. We are beings created to relate to God. And I don't know about you, but I find the relationship that we have with our God very one-sided. I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, he creates a home for us. And he creates man. And he creates woman. And he creates marriage. And he places man and woman in this garden that he has created for them. And he gives us his breath. And he gives us his law. And he gives us a command. He gives, he gives, he gives. 
He's given us everything in this world. There was a missionary, uh, S.D. Gordon, who once was thinking about this, and he wrote this. He said, this giving of himself is his most characteristic trait. He's given us everything and has been doing so constantly. In giving his breath, he let us know that whenever the need might come, he would give us his blood. And that's exactly what Paul references here in verse 14, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us and to purify us, to be a people for his own possession. The heart of God, friends, longs for you and for me. The heart of God so knows who you are and where you've been, and he loves you because he made you. Long before God even created the garden, Jesus was in the Father's presence at the Father's side. And it was his love for us that drew him down to our side of the galaxy and saw us in our lowly estate where he sacrificed his comfort and his glory to come to us and to give of himself for us so that we might have a way to relate to God once more. I find this hope that we have for a relationship with God, that we can know God and he know us, that we might have righteousness in our relationship with God once again. I find this to be the great universal equalizer among humanity, that God so loves each one of us and has gone to such great lengths for us to be in a relationship again. It means that the drug addict can repent and believe and be saved and welcome to God as a child. It means that victims of abuse can find healing in his arms. It means that liars can release their pride and live truly. It means that the selfish, the self-righteous can find real righteousness through Christ. Where sinners are saved and loved ones are purifying because a relationship with Christ is the most purifying thing imaginable. It starts when you believe in Christ and he purifies you and it happens to go on until the day when Christ comes again where, check this out, at the end of days, when Jesus does come back, we have a promise that he will return to call to himself his church, which God's word calls his bride. You see, all this time God has been purifying and calling and wooing and pursuing and proposing to us his church Because one day in the future, the hope that we have is this hope of a relationship between a marriage ceremony between Christ and his church, where we will stand before Christ, perfect and spotless, the one that he loves, that he is excited to unite himself to. It remains true today, even in the midst of our cultural changes, that the most intimate relationship that we have a category for is the union between husband and and wife. And this is how God describes the relationship he wants to have with you. That the end of days, we might be called his bride, because in Eden, God gives us his breath. And on Calvary, God gives us his blood. And in Zion, that day when we go to be with God, he will call us his bride. But if you're anything like me as we kind of close down this message and consider a little bit about it, to hear that God is purifying his church or that he's in love with his church sometimes makes me go, really, God? Like this, here. 
And if you'd be so kind as to, like, you know, calmly and not judgmentally look around and just see what I'm talking about. This, the people in this space here, this is who we're talking about. These are those who have been saved by God, who are being saved, are being purified. This is what you love, God. A bunch of self-righteous people, a bunch of sinners, a bunch of people who missed the mark. I know that's who I am and I know that's who you are. That you chose in your infinite wisdom to call us the thing that you love the most. That you call us your bride. That you would die for us. And Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, I love my church. I love who you are. And some of us, one day we hope that we'll be worthy of Christ's wedding, but today we don't feel beautiful. You hear that one day we'll be spotless, but today we feel dirty. We say, Lord, if you came today, I don't know that this would work out. But my friends, we have hope. Hope. Hope in that Christ has come and he loves his church. And he wants to have the greatest relationship with you and with me and with us as a community together. That he is loving the church, pursuing his church, and purifying his church. And so at the end of this message here in Titus chapter 2, we see that what unifies this congregation here is not three distinct hopes that we have that some of us might be righteous and some of us might hope for the return of Christ and some of us might have a relationship with God. But we have a hope that is not three separate hopes, but one singular hope is the hope that is found uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ. For he is our only hope. That through him alone we can have righteousness. That through him alone coming again we hope for his return. And that through him alone we can have relationships that are put back together by him. This hope works itself out in our marriages where those who have been separated because of marital strife and division can yield their lives to Jesus and find reconciliation and healing because we know that we will be reconciled and healed together with Christ when he comes. That those who have strained relationships even in this body can release their pride and bow their knee at the cross of Jesus Christ and together say we look to Christ alone. We want to follow Christ alone and have righteousness in this community here. The hope that we have in Jesus so permeates every aspect of our lives. And I want to ask you this. Have you placed your hope in Jesus alone? 